in a woman's handwriting. Dear Jack, I'm glad you told me about the girl in France. I know she must be as kind and as good as you say she is, because if you love her, she must be. I wish you had told me sooner and not waited so long. It's true what you say. I'm only a silly girl and don't really know what love is, but, but I know I'll never change my mind about you, not in a million years. And then you read down the letter, like, I'm standing there with my cup of water, like, I'm reading someone's private letter from 70 years ago. And then you read down, and it says, don't show this letter to anyone. (laughs) Because it hurts too much. Okay, they found this letter inside the wall of the administration building there. 70 years ago, some little girl wrote this letter to her soldier boyfriend who is now going to be operated on, and he was in love with some girl in France. And when I read that, I actually kind of felt, like, embarrassed. Like, am I supposed to read this? Like, I know it was a long time ago, but it's so personal and so raw and so, like, it wasn't written for me. I say that because I feel the same way when we break open the wisdom literature of the Bible. I know that sounds funny, but if you, if you seriously sit down, some days I open up my Bible in that center section, you know, Psalms, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. You open that section up, and it is so personal, so shocking, so honest, that when you read it, you're like, are we supposed to be reading this? Ecclesiastes is a great example of this. You read it, and as you start turning the pages, you become keenly aware that while God intended us to read it, I don't know that Solomon, the author, intended us to read it. You get the sense that that he is writing this book for no one except himself, that he is struggling with life in an unedited, unapologetic way unapologetic way. It's like, it's part testimony, part journal, part like, like case study of life. And so, you read, you read through, and he's sitting at a party, and he's like, life doesn't get any better than this. And then a couple days later, you turn the page, and you read it, and he's like, people at a funeral are better than people at a party, because at least they know what life's about. You're like, what's going on with this guy? You read one day, he finishes this big day of work. He sits back and says, there's nothing better in life than to work hard and enjoy it. And then you turn the page and he's like, if I work another day, I'm going to die. I hate my life. You're like, did did this, he clearly didn't write it for me. He thought he was just writing it to himself. This is, this is not... This is not some teaching book. This is not the book of Romans we're coming to. This is not some story like history like we have in Genesis or First and Second Kings. This is like someone's journal. This is life unedited. Now, isn't it interesting that God wants us to write alongside of history, write alongside these teaching books, write alongside the great teachings and sayings of Jesus Christ that he puts in there This unedited, unapologetic, often contradictory, frustrated, raw, doubting, struggling book called Ecclesiastes. And let me tell you, it's not a safe book. 
When you start reading, like if you pull any, if you just open up the book of Ecclesiastes and pull out a verse, you're going to read things like this. You can do nothing better in life than to eat, drink, and party. And I'm like, really? Nothing better in life? I don't want you hanging out with my kids. <laughs> okay. So, I know a lot of times we, uh, we view the Bible in little tidbits, because we view all of life in little tidbits now, right? So if you want information, you don't actually read a book, you Google it, and you read that instant one-line answer. So, so we could just open up the book of Ecclesiastes, and if you pull out individual lines, you'll find things like, um, so if, if we just said, okay, randomly, we're going to start teaching the kids to memorize Scripture. That's a good thing, right? So little Johnny, we send them upstairs. Today your, your memory verse is Ecclesiastes 2.17. And they come home all happy and you say, Oh Johnny, what did you learn today? Ecclesiastes 2.17. So I hated life. <laughs> this is not a safe book. It's going to be really, really important that when we read these verses, that we read it in context of the whole book. And that when we read this book, we read it in context of the whole of Scripture. And honestly, when we read all of the Scriptures, that we read it together. That God intends His people to come together around this and say, God, what are you saying to us? How are we supposed to view this in light of what you've done in Jesus Christ? How are we supposed to make sense of this meaningless book in this meaningless life? So all of this is going to lead to the big question that we're not going to fully answer today, but I hope to begin. Why does God want us to read this book? Like, why would God give us this hard, struggling, sometimes very pessimistic, sometimes contradictory, sometimes very frustrating book, and say, I want you to read this right alongside the great teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, along the great prophecies of Revelation and Ezekiel. I want you to read about this disgruntled old man. So let's see. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Who is this? Solomon. Thank you. Somebody went to Sunday school class one time. Anyone? Solomon. Yeah, 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 yeah. His name, you'll see right here, it just says the words of the teacher. Uh, and he, in Greek, it's Ecclesiastes is the word name for teacher there. So that's where we get the name of the book. And in uh, Hebrew, it's Koheleth. And the only reason I mention that because you might have a conversation with your Jewish friend or neighbor. Some of you might be Jewish. You know, if you open up your, your Bible, it's going to be called Koheleth. So go ahead and invite them. We're, we're going to learn from Koheleth in these next few months. Traditionally, it's always been believed that this teacher is not just a son of David, but is the literal son of David, the king of Israel, that it's Solomon. Now, if, um, if you're a Bible student or you've watched enough of the History Channel, you know that it's just not cool in today's modern scholarship, that modern scholars don't really accept this as being written by Solomon um, for a, n- a number of reasons. And some of those are very good reasons, and that's worth having a discussion on. But the fact of the matter is your pastor is just not that cool. And I'm just going to read it as Solomon. The basic problem with, with saying that this isn't written by Solomon is that when you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to see that this teacher is described as having ruled over a united Israel, having unparalleled wealth, having women upon women, 
having wisdom, having built cities, having planted forests, having solved international problems, having ate the best of foods, throwing the best parties, listening to the best music. This guy is portrayed as is this never-before-seen combination of like Hugh Hefner and Bill Gates and, and Einstein and Bono all put together. And if you read through the scriptures, there is only one character who fits that description, and it's Solomon. He is easily the greatest king in the history of Israel. So, with all of his wisdom and all of his money and all of his good causes and all of his rock star appeal, Solomon is now going to give us his life statement. That's verse number two here. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. (laughs) Everything? Everything. Meaningless? Utterly meaningless. Don't you just read this and you just want to chuckle? Be like, oh, Solomon, it's going to be okay. Come here, you need a hug today. It's going to be all right. You know, drink a little sleepy time tea and take a nap today. It's going to be okay. The sun's going to come up tomorrow. What do you mean everything's meaningless? And, and if you look at this statement, it's going to be really important for us. The word meaningless translated meaningless here. Some of your your translations will say vanity. Some of them will say vapor. Some of them will say different things. That word's going to be real key to us. It it happens 36 times in 12 chapters. Like if you took this word out of the book of Ecclesiastes, you would no longer have the book of Ecclesiastes. This word is literally the Hebrew word hevel. Say that with me. Hevel. Hevel. I'm going to wait until you say it. Hevel. Now breathe. Okay, so this is important. When you say it, you don't just say hevel, you say hevel. And the reason is because when, in the Hebrew, a lot of times you'll find this in their language, that the word actually mimics what it means. So it literally means vapor or breath. So, you know, you, you wake up on a cold morning, you step outside and you go, and that, that you see just for a second, that you see it and then it's gone. That's what they're talking about. Solomon says, you see that? You see that? How there's no mark that it was ever here. That it was there for a second. You know that it was there, but then it's gone. And it left no mark on the world whatsoever. That's what life is like. It is meaningless. It is vanity. It is hollow. At one point, he'll say, it's a shadow. If you try and grab it, there's nothing to grab. You're going to come up empty-handed every time. But that's not the only meaning of Hevel. If you've been married for more than, say, a week... You know, or you should know, that breathing is not just a a bodily function. It's actually a means of communication. So, so you you know, my one day off during the week, it's going to be glorious. It's supposed to be the daddy day off where I do nothing. And, And there's this big work project, and I spend the whole afternoon working on it. I get all my tools out. I'm like... Plumbing, which is just a curse from the devil itself. And, and right as I finish, and I put the last tool away, my beautiful bride says, Oh, that's not quite right. And what's my response? Oh, I have to get all the tools out. Going to have to undo what I just did and fix it. Okay, so Jenny just cleans up the house, makes everything pristine. She steps out seriously for 30 seconds. And I don't even know how we do it, but somehow 
me and two kids on my day off, we can manage to destroy the entire house in about 30 seconds. We do. She comes back in the door and she doesn't say anything. What does she say? (sighs) So roughly translated in spouse talk, that means, are you kidding me? And that's what Hevel means. Are you kidding me? He's going to look around life and he's going to say, that there are great men and women who give their whole life to serving the Lord and they die when they're 40 or 50 with nothing. And there are perverts out there who are going to be billionaires and live to be 100. Are you kidding me? That I can work hard my whole life and never achieve anything, never see anything happen. And some other guy, by some act of luck, it seems, he just gets everything. Everything goes right for him. And in the end, we both just end up in a plot of ground six feet down. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Heaven. When we study life, When we look over creation, a biblical response is not just to rejoice always, as the Apostle Paul says, but there are times when we should be deeply frustrated because things are not the way they're supposed to be. So Solomon, at this point, we're only two verses in. He just told us his life statement, and now he's going to stop us, and he's going to look at us and go, look at you. Oh, you wore a pink shirt today. Oh, you're all chipper and smiling. You think life is happy, don't you? You think you're special, a little precious snowflake, and all the world's going to be so different now that you showed up. Let me tell you what life is like. Verse 3, what does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? I had a philosophy class in undergrad, and the professor specialized in tearing apart undergrads. So after, I took him, I took him like four different classes. So in the first class, I didn't know what I was doing. And I remember like the first time I actually answered one of his questions, I spent the rest of the class just like ashamed and embarrassed and like not knowing what I believe. So from then on, though, you learn. And by the third or fourth class, he asked a question, and you just stop. All the upperclassmen stop and say, wait. One of the freshmen's actually going to answer his question. This is going to be awesome. We, we actually came up with a term for it. We call it a, a verbal wedgie. Because <laughs> it was pure embarrassment. And it was just, it was, it was inappropriate, actually, what he would do to the students. And this is, this is one of those questions. Solomon, the wisest man in the world, just asked us a question. What does man gain from all of his labor at which he toils under the sun? And if you answer it, you're going to be in trouble. Because this, my friends, is not a question. This is a statement. Solomon has already looked everywhere under the sun. Everywhere in this life, everywhere in the world. This is, um, under the sun is is, uh, ancient Near Eastern cosmology 101, right? Underneath us is Sheol, the grave. That's where you go when you die. Above us is the firmament, and that's where the stars and the sun and the clouds pass through. But above the sun, above the firmament, is heaven. That's where God is. And here we are, between heaven and Sheol, between God and the grave, under the sun. And he says, I've looked everywhere in that realm, everywhere in this life, but underneath God and before death, 
if there's a place, if there's a rock to turn over, I've turned it over. And our work achieves nothing in that place. All of our work is achieving nothing. Look at verse 4. Generations come and generations go, but the earth, this is important here, the earth there he's referring to humanity, but humanity remains forever. He's saying this, listen to this. You'd think that with all of our education and all of our technology and our vitamins and vaccines and workout programs and school programs and church programs and isms and programs and programs and government and all the stuff we're working so hard and so busily to do, you would think that if, if, if all of this was actually achieving something, then every generation would be what? Getting better. That humanity would be progressing. You would think that, that the great human problems, war, racism, gender inequality, unemployment, extreme poverty, violence, immorality, you would think that those would be going away. One would think. Wouldn't that be progress? But he looks around and says, it's just not true. So go back, read Genesis chapter 12. About the year 2013 B.C. Read the story of Abraham. What's that story? That story is a story about war and sex and murder and lies and racism and sexism and inequality and doubt. Okay, so you hop online and you look at the front page of CNN.com, 2013. What's on the front page? What's the story today? It's war and lies and sex and deceit and racism and sexism. All those problems that we've been working 4,000 years to solve, they're not solved. There's no progress. Generations come and generations go, but we are the same. If you want to know what life is like, you look at the next verse here. He's going to say, look at creation, verses 5 through 7. The sun rises and the sun sets, and it hurries. It literally pants back to where it rises. The wind blows from the south and then turns to the north, and round and round and round it goes, just like it's on a treadmill, ever returning on its course. And all streams flow into the sea, and the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. This is what life is like. It's got all the progress of, of the sweaty guy pedaling as fast as he can on the stationary bike. Thinking that if he just go a little harder, he would actually make it somewhere. And yet the faster we go, the more gears we hit, the more we work. But humanity reign, remains the same. And the more he thinks about this, the tired he gets. This is verse 8. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye has, uh, never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. So th- this, is, this is a picture of life, Solomon. He says it's life on repeat. So what's your day going to be like tomorrow? Let's see. You go to bed tonight, 6, 7 a.m. I don't know what time you guys get up. The alarm goes off. Beep, 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 beep. You wake up. For me, it's kids everywhere. Got to go potty. Need clothes. Need this. Need that. Pull out your email or your cell phone, like, oh no, 75 unread messages. Most of you are going to have to fight through 30 or 40 minutes of traffic. 
And then you're going to go there and it's going to be emails and meetings and stress and deadlines and people complaining. And then, oh, I just got to find some distraction. And then maybe you'll go out to lunch with a friend. That'd be nice. And then you go back to emails and stress and deadlines and meetings and projects. Also, you can fight traffic home. And then you get home and you're going to hear the same story from your wife if you work. How was today? Oh, the kids did this and ah, and solve this problem, solve this problem. Let's just watch a little TV, go to bed. You wake up the next morning, beep, 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 beep. Ah. And that's just if you're lucky enough to work outside of the home. You young moms, your day actually repeats in much shorter segments. What are you going to do? I'm going to fix breakfast so I can clean up after the kids, so I can get them ready for lunch, so I can fix lunch, so I can clean up after the kids, so I can do laundry, so that I can do more laundry, so that I can do more dishes. So verse 9, what has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Now here's where um, Solomon actually loses most of us, so I want you to stick with me here. At this point, you know, you're like, Solomon, oh boy, I think you just need a vacation. Life would be a lot better. Come here. He, he just—he sounds like one of those cute old men who's never actually—he's never actually used his cell phone before. And you're like, oh, isn't that sweet? Like Solomon, if you just came with me for just a day to 2013, I would show you my iPad, and I would show you planes that fly in the air, and I would show you some new things, Solomon. And Solomon, though, um, this is this is where we get in danger. Like, you know, at this point, you know, you, we want to point out all the things that we've achieved. And what are those things? We, we'd say, if you want to see something new, we put a man on the moon. I've got an iPad. You know, you can fly. We have medical breakthroughs. It's Gangnam style. I mean, if a Korean rapper dancing like he's riding a horse is not something new under the sun, then, then come on, man. That's got to be something new. You, know, you look at this and you say, Solomon, what is going on here? And this is where, where we get in the trap of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. We think just because we're later on the chronological scale that we know more than Solomon. But, but to say that is to, is to really miss what Solomon's saying here. Solomon is not saying that there's not new things, new events, ideas. He's just saying that they serve the same ancient purposes that they're just new reiterations of the same old thing. So, so, okay, all of this is in context of verse 4, which said generations come, generations go, but humanity, earth, remains forever. So the point is, it's great. Okay, great, now we can build a rocket ship. We could send a man to the moon. In fact, if we wanted to, we could build enough rocket ships. We could send a whole colony to the moon. And you know what we'd have on the moon then? War and racism and hatred and gossip. And brokenness and sinners. You know what all of our progress gives us? We can now export our brokenness. Uh, you want to know what progress is? It's um, the internet. So you can instantly share with the entire world pornography and gossip and greed. Oh, that, that, that's great. That's progress. Solomon is going to say, look at verse 10 here. Is there anything new of which one can say, look, this is something new? If you say that, his point is going to be, the problem is, is, is you never learned history. 
verse, second half here. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. So you hold up this and you say, oh, this is a Kindle. Look, Solomon, we're so smart. And he's like, it's a book. It's a book. You say, oh, but I've got a car. He says, it's a chariot with a motor in it. He said, but I've got a cell phone. He says, I've got carrier pigeons. It's the same ancient idea, and it's not solving our real problems. These are tools that serve the same tired purposes. The only thing new is the speed with which they work. So do you want to know the real result of all of our progress in life? Solomon's going to tell us the real result of all of our progress in life is that now, in our brilliant age, we can achieve faster than anyone ever imagined possible. You know, back in Solomon's day, you really had to work hard to figure out that life is meaningless. Now there's an app for that. (laughs) Isn't that great? We are a lot less important than we want to believe. That every generation thinks, oh, I'm going to be different. I'm going to be a snowflake. I'm going to be special. I'm going to change the world. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Quick question for you. How many of you could give a biographic sketch of your great, 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 great grandparents? Like, you know their name, you know what they did, you know where they lived. How, How many of you could give us a life sketch, a detail of four or five generations back? None of you? Come on, there's got to be someone here. Okay, how long ago was that? The scope of things, that was just. And if you, the direct descendants, don't even remember your own family, do you really think anyone's going to remember you? Solomon is seriously seriously troubled by all this. So, so here's the deal. If you have the money of Bill Gates, if you have the, the women of Hugh Hefner, if you have the brilliance of Einstein and just the rock star do-good appeal of Bono, what do you do when you are that guy? I'll tell you what. You say, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tr- test this out. I'm going to see if there is a way to make an achievement, to make a difference, to make progress in life. I'm going to take it to its logical extreme at every level. I'm going to actually test this out. And this is exactly what he does. Verse 12, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to uh, explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. I'm going to start an exploration, a great experiment here. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. Verse 14, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. He looks over life. He starts an exploration, and he just goes, ah. He is so frustrated. Verse 16, I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. He realizes that he is in a unique position. 
that he has more wealth and more power and access to art and the good things of life. He has more chance to do good, more, more chance to start causes, more chance to lead people, more chance to do anything than anyone prior to him. He says if there's one person who has it all, who has an opportunity to actually make a difference in life, it is me. So he's going to do this and nothing is off bounds. Look at verse 17. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. I want you to think about this. He's going to say nothing is out off bounds in this experiment that I'm going to do. I'm going to apply myself to wisdom. This is the highbrow way. So I'm going to show up to church. I'm going to, I'm going to get a really good job in a nice place. I'm going to listen to classical music and drink crystal. I'm going to teach my kids Latin and the oboe. We're, we're going to speak Latin at home. I'm going to have friends and I'm going to go to a country club. I, I'm going to hang out with British people just because it sounds sophisticated. And he does that and says, you know what? They, not just British people, but everyone is just as messed up as I am. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just apply himself to wisdom. He also goes the way of madness and folly. Now, you got to love this. You, you know what he just said? He said, so when that didn't work, I tore the sleeves off my shirt, got myself a Yosemite Sam tat, one of those big trucks that says, ain't scared on the back. <laughs> Drank some natty light and taught my kids how to spit and shoot guns. Went to NASCAR. <laughs> no, no comments about the NASCAR. You all know. You know. He said he did all that. I tried that. He said, get her done. And it just, nothing got done. I tried both. And it wasn't in the highbrow way and it wasn't in the lowbrow way. There's no way under heaven that he couldn't find it. For the next 11 chapters, we're going to see him systematically go through all the areas that we so cherish in life. Our work, and our kids, and our friends, and our money, and our wealth, and our stuff, and our success, and our do-good causes. And he's going to go through every one of those and say, is there meaning? Can I make a real difference? Can we make progress if I pursue this to its logical extreme? If I have the best party you've ever seen? If I have the best job? If I plant an entire national forest, can I make a difference in this world? And the answer is in verse 18. For much, with much wisdom comes much sorrow. And the more knowledge, the more grief. He says, the more I learned, the more I just needed to be medicated. At this point, there's about two-thirds of you who are saying, I thought church was supposed to be happy. Like I came here, the sun was shining. You had a pink shirt on. I thought it was going to be a good day. Where's the part where you tell me, no, but Solomon had it all wrong. We're just happy. You were the different one. You were a snowflake. Sorry. We're, we're never going to get to happy. But, but I do need you to hang on. And then there's another third of you, which... Are much worse. You actually love this message. Like you're going to come home and <laughs> you're going to go sit in your drawers in the dark. You have a bag of Doritos. Your wife's going to be like, honey, will you go fix that? You're like, what? 
It's just going to break again, and then I'll fix it again, and then it'll break again, and then I die. <laughs> okay, I don't want that phone call this week. I don't want that. All right? You need to hang on too. So there's somewhere between happy and that that we're going to end up here. Today I just want to, I want to make three observations about why does God want us to have this book. And this is going to lead us for the next few months. There's three things that I want to see out of this text. Why does God want us to sit with Solomon and hear his anguish as he works systematically through every area of life? One thing, I, I just the, the broadest thing I need to say here is this. Just because you can't change the world doesn't mean the world can't be changed. Just because you can't make yourself eternal doesn't mean you can't be made eternal. Let's unpack it in these three points. The first is that life under the sun, this life that we know it, between heaven and death, is frustrated and frustrating. The the whole of Scripture is going to say this over and over again. Hevel. The rest of the Bible is going to cause this sin. It is frustrating. And if you're frustrated, you're biblical, man. I, I get it. Solomon gets it. The second point is this. What's broken in our world, what's frustrating in our world, you cannot fix. He says it this way. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. And I'm sorry to break the news to you, but there is nothing you can do to fix yourself or save our planet. Nothing. For some of you, this comes as very crushing news. Some of you don't believe me right now. But that's okay. We've got 11 more chapters. And this is hard news. If you think that you are the center of the universe, if you think that you are the savior of yourself or of the world, it's going to go badly. But, If you come to a place where you can actually accept that you are not the Savior, that your accomplishments don't achieve your significance, then suddenly, listen to this, you don't have to be successful. You don't have to be. It won't make you significant. You don't have to have a a house with 5,000 square feet. Your kids don't have to go to Harvard and play the oboe. You don't have to have to have the biggest truck with the ain't scared bumper sticker. You don't have to create your own value. You don't have to create your legacy in eternity. You don't have to do anything. None of those things can give you true significance or lasting value. The good news is not that, not that you control nothing and can do nothing. That's, um, that's Buddhism. That's not Christianity. Which brings me to my third point. So the first point is this. Life under the sun is frustrating and meaningless. Number two, you can't fix what's wrong in our world. But number three, God is not under the sun. I want you to listen to this. Jesus Christ is not under the sun. He is not frustrated and he is not meaningless. He is the source of all significance. He is the one who who gives eternity meaning. He is the Alpha and the Omega. So, so as a Christian, I can admit freely, I cannot make myself significant and I cannot make myself eternal. 
So the only possible way I could have significance or experience eternity is if God himself somehow broke in under the sun, came after me, and gave my life significance, invited me to eternity. Do you understand? The only way possible that we could find meaning or eternity is if God acted on our behalf. He's the only one who can do that. He would have to not only change this world, but he would have to break into my life in a way that's so fundamental that we would call it becoming a new person, being born again. What are the chances that the God of the universe would actually humble himself, come under the sun to earth, freely show me a life of significance, and then die on my behalf So that I can receive significance and the hope of eternity. What are the chances that that would happen? I hope that sounds familiar to you. Because that's what God did through Jesus Christ. This whole book points us to our only hope. That's him. That he gives us significance. So are you weary? Are you frustrated? Have you looked at life and seen the way things work out and just go, oh, are you kidding me? There is a life of significance available to us. But this whole book is going to point us to one thing. We have to repent of trying to save ourselves. Repent of trying to make our own significance. Repent of trying to make our own legacy, our own eternity. Repent of making ourselves God. That the only way we can receive it is to receive it as a free gift. That we actually have to trust that what Jesus accomplished on the cross is enough. That what he did is enough to give you eternal significance with the Father. Trust that what he did in rising from the dead is powerful enough to give you new life. Now and in eternity. Uh, Like I said, I I don't know where you're at. But I bet all of you are going to be frustrated at some point this week. And I pray um, if you've never come to that point of frustration where you realize that I can't do it on my own, I pray that this week is extraordinarily frustrating for you. I pray that your life is filled with ah and hopelessness until you realize that the only hope we have is in a God who would send his son for us. If you have come to that point, I encourage you to come forward and share that with us. We want to pray with you. We want to work with you. We want to show you how Jesus Christ can take all these meaningless things and give them eternal significance. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for uh, this message and this ride. We thank you for, for Solomon and his just extraordinary honesty, Lord. His struggle. Lord, because we struggle. God, we thank you for his just, the the raw way he just views life, Lord. That 
that we can know that we're not the only ones who've been frustrated. We're not the only ones who, who've doubted. We're not the only ones who've, who've gone through this, Lord. And yet, God, as we come here, I pray that we don't end there. I pray that with Solomon, we always come back to you. That we come to fear you, to love you, to seek you as our only hope, as our significance, as our eternity. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.